You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. And as often our tradition here, I bring guests who have compelling and interesting stories about their journey to be better leaders, to build businesses, to start businesses. And today is no real exception. I've got a gentleman who has a very compelling story. But more importantly, I love his tagline. He calls himself leader by accident. His name is Jim Rafferty. And Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Doug. Great, great to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah. So as I, as I say, his, his tagline and book title caught my attention right away because it's been my experience. And uh, I look at clients and people around me. It's not uncommon in the business world that people get appointed to be a manager or a leader of a team or a project, and they've never had that experience before. So they're sort of thrust into that spotlight with no particular preparation or experience. Some make it through just fine and figure it out. Others, quite frankly, struggle with it, and it it becomes a lifelong scar that maybe never goes away. But uh, Jim, you have a whale of a backstory on this. So share with everybody what it was that got you on this path. Sure. Uh, Leader by Accident, the the book begins really in 2008. I pretty suddenly became scoutmaster of our son's Boy Scout troop uh, when the existing scoutmaster and his wife and two younger sons were all shot to death by their oldest son, who was then 15 years old, which was... Wow every bit as horrible as it sounds and and worse. And, you know, so you had a troop of about 25 young men, you know, suddenly reduced by three, plus their very much beloved scoutmaster. John was an amazing guy. Um, And we really didn't know if the troop would survive. So at this juncture in the troop's history, they asked me to step up and take on this job, which was kind of strange because I had been a scout for all of a couple of weeks as a kid. I really didn't like it. I was not any kind of outdoors person in terms of, you know, somebody who regularly went camping or hiking or any of those things that scoutmasters do and and really had no, you know, leadership experience within the scouting program. I would, you know, help organize a camping trip and go along when I could to be an extra pair of hands. But uh, I remember sitting in the meeting where the decision about the new scoutmaster was to be made and, you know, these people looking at me. And finally, I said, folks, there are 12 people in this room and 11 of them have more scouting experience than I do. So so I'm a little puzzled here, but if this is what you think is best, OK, I'll, I'll give it a try. And that was a really life changing decision. Those next five years were transformative in terms of leadership lessons learned and just some so rewarding in in ways that I really struggle to describe. And, you know, that in itself, I guess, is an okay little story. But um, what really made the difference, I think, is the way that step out of my comfort zone into that role that I really had no qualifying experience for uh, fueled the next step out of my comfort zone, which was a few years later when I lost the job I'd had for almost 21 years to that point. And, um, wound up hanging out my shingle as an entrepreneur, which had never crossed my mind, you know, to to do anything than have somebody hand me a paycheck every week or two and, and provide my health care and, and all of that. Um, I just wasn't wired that way. But th- that that first step out into all the scouting experiences 
really gave me the the courage to to make that professional switch and to step out of my comfort zone. And that really is the the gist of the book because that what that was even maybe even more life changing. I mean, I'm just that was ten and a half years ago that I entered the entrepreneurial world and you know, just by far the most successful and enjoyable stretch of my career in terms of, you know, loving what you do and having schedule flexibility and, and all the things we want from our work. Yeah. You know, on one hand, I can really relate to the <clears throat> scouting story. I, I was a scout as a young boy, and we had our own trauma in our scout troop. And I won't go into all those details. Fortunately, my scout leader was not murdered, but there were circumstances and allegations that forced him out, none of which were true, by the way, but it was what it was, and, and he was asked to step down. And sounds like your guy, uh, just an incredible model of a man, just wonderful spirit, great mentor to young boys. And it was it was just, for me, it was a bit of a life-altering moment because I just had such great respect for this man, and he had taught me so much. But it was interesting that kind of the peer group I was in, we were the more senior scouts in the troop at that time. And with a void of adult leadership wanting to step in, we kind of collaborated and, and we sort of started running by committee. And we actually got a blessing from the scout district to do that. And we, and it was agreed it would be temporary, but we didn't want to stop having meetings because we didn't have a scoutmaster. And they said, okay. And the church that was hosting us agreed and said, that's wonderful. And ultimately we talked our high school principal into helping us and, <laughs> and it all worked out. But, uh, it, it it is an incredible opportunity. So if, if you will, just can you recount a couple of the basic aha moments you had in that new leadership role? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, there were so many. I, I, I think, you know, stepping into that role, it did two things right. Um, one was to admit right up front that, you know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and that's my advice to anybody you know, being thrust into a new promotion, you know, whether professionally or, or some other part of their life as a volunteer or, or whatever, you know, ask for help if you need it. And I did that. And lo and behold, a lot of people stepped up and did more. And because of that, the troop not only survived, but thrived over that next year, several years. And because we had a lot of people, you know, doing a lot of things. So, you know, you, you don't have to do everything alone and, and don't be afraid to admit your weaknesses and, and have people come and, and help with that. And I think as a group, the thing we did that also was the right thing to do was we did not hide from what had happened. You know, we regularly discussed the the tragedy and what had happened, you know, and as the case worked its way through the courts and there were updates and we checked in on each other regularly to make sure that yeah. you know everybody was okay and you know in a good place and you know i think that made a big difference yeah that that's powerful and and i i love your first point about admitting you don't know everything and you 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 don't know what you don't know and that that's a pretty uh, deep level of of commitment the um the magic in that is that that 
I call it vulnerability to just admit that is very tangible and palpable. And, and the, anybody around you that wants to see success can appreciate that. And to your point, if they've got a skill or a knowledge or a resource and they can step up and contribute, maybe more so than they did before, because yeah. if the and I'm not speaking anything disparaging here, but if the former scoutmaster was kind of all wired together and, you know, sort of high powered scout, probably with all the life badges that the adult leaders can get, that's, that's a little intimidating and, you know, show up as a volunteer and say, I want to help this guy. And it's like, why? <laughs> they, they were, they were big shoes to fill. I will I'll tell you that. And, um, and, and, yeah, you make a good point because I, I can look back in my own life and find situations where I, you know, I, I think some of that wisdom and the not being afraid to ask for help part comes with age and experience. You know, when when I was, I don't know, somewhere around 28, I guess, we moved to Baltimore so I could be program director of a radio station here. So suddenly I'm in a new position managing I don't know, eight to 10 people total, I guess, who were all older than me and in some case decades older. And I, I had not yet given myself that memo about, uh, you know, not being not being afraid to admit that you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, you, you know, so it was a kind of, you know, one direction kind of management, like I'm the boss and, you know, this is how we're going to do it and all end. You know, predictably, it, it didn't go so well. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you, you live and learn is part of it, I think. Well, I think closely related to that is is the popular thinking about fake it till you make it. And it, usually when we think about first-time leaders, that's a topic that, that bubbles up. And, you know, there's a very delicate fine line in, in the spirit of that statement, fake it till you make it. It's... And, and I guess, again, with age and experience, I've come to the fact that if I have a client start talking about that, I say, well, let's stop. Just we need to purge that from your mind. That's that's not a good answer. It it might right. be socially popular to embrace that idea, but it's um, I think it sets you up to fail down the road. Yeah, somewhere in the book, I think I use that exact phrase too. Like, I, I'm not a big fan of that phrase, fake it till you make it. But, you know, at, at some point, you have to do things you're uncomfortable with or you're never going to grow. And, and leader by accident, more than anything else, is about the the power of getting out of your comfort zone and the, the transformative things that, that can happen. And honestly, as a scoutmaster, that was a regular part of my messaging to the boys because, you know, you say this about us at any phase in life, but especially when you're a teenager, you know, going through those years, you have so many opportunities to try new things, you know, and you never know which is going to be the one, you know, the the thing that's really going to click for you that you're going to love or, you know, versus the thing you're not going to be very good at. But, you know, if you go into it with the attitude that, well, I'm I'm not going to be very good at this, you're, you'll be right every time, you know, and I always tried to encourage them to, you know, Keep an open mind. Don't say no to new opportunities. At least give it a try. And, you know, there's a, a story in the book where I follow that up where somebody reached out with a bit of work when I was first starting. And it really didn't have much to do with marketing. It was more of a uh, technical writing kind of thing. And I said, okay, because, you know, I was just starting out and I needed whatever I could get. And, you know, that then turned into, well, lo and behold, this company also needed voiceover work for recording training materials and stuff. And over the next several years, that work combined did a lot 
towards putting a couple of kids through college. And, you know, because I didn't say no, and I agreed to try something that sounded like it was a little outside of my wheelhouse. Now, you know, is every time successful like that? No, of course not. But you never know until you try and until you're willing to take that step out of your comfort zone and try new things. Yeah. So, so let's let's pivot a little bit and let's uh, talk about the later chapters in your story where you did do that uh, step out to start a business and become an entrepreneur. Can you kind of summarize the circumstances? And sure, I, I had been the marketing sales manager for a pretty sizable home improvement company here in Baltimore for almost twenty one years, and the ownership changed, and I lasted about a year after that, and. Did not go well. Uh, much more about that in the book, but no need to, to rehash it here. Um, and so I found myself looking for the next thing, and I instinctively started to look for a job. As, as I said at the beginning, that was really all I ever knew how to do was, you know, have somebody else hand me a paycheck. And, you know, the problem with that strategy was that people weren't lined up around the block to uh, hire a 51-year-old self-taught marketer at that point. So I, there was not a lot of response. And and while I was doing all that and sending out the resumes and doing all that churning of stuff that you do when you're looking for a job, a few people reached out and, you know, one guy from the scout troop asked me to stop by his small business and take a look at, you know, talk about his website and a couple of other things. And then a, a relative by marriage out of state asked me to take a look at a proposal he had for his website. And then a third person I knew asked me to stop by and talk about marketing. I thought, wow, there's maybe a path here that I hadn't thought about. And the difference is, though, and, and this is really the, the crux of the book for me, is, you know, I think the old gym, the, the pre-scouting gym, um, would have probably taken on that work, but I would, as a side hustle, nights, weekends, whatever, but I would have kept looking until I had the safety net and the paycheck and the health care and all that stuff, whether it was something I really wanted to do or not. Um, the gym who had had these leadership experiences who had done the the physical challenges like hiking down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and camping for four nights and hiking back out and the, the things I'd done in those intervening years, you know, that Jim said, you know what, let's do this. And I went and hung out the shingle and told the state of Maryland to stop sending the unemployment checks and and the rest is history. And as I said, it's gone, it's gone very well. So, you know, those are the the things that happen, I think, when we we challenge ourselves and we do the thing that we're uncomfortable with, because it was a it was a very uncomfortable time when when all that went down. Our our son, the Boy Scout, was then about a year from going to college. You know, I had always been the primary breadwinner. My wife worked a couple of part time jobs, but you know, it was a that was a difficult summer in the in the Rafferty household. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, and you know. Some sometimes uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And, Truth. And yep. uh, working that out, and you know, you mentioned the uh, the age bias in in job search, and as most of my listeners and readers know, I've 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 had my presence in that market for a while, of of doing some work in career transition, and and there's definitely a. Um, a kind of an age bias out there in the market there there's no doubt about it and you know finding that solution to overcome and and find something that can be fulfilling and meaningful and financially viable that's that's the other side to it yep. so fast forward what does your business look like today i am a marketing communications consultant so i work with businesses really 
all, I mean, not huge corporations, but small and mid-sized businesses, let's say, but some of them are pretty big on everything from general strategy, what direction should we go, branding, that kind of thing, to, you know, building websites and a little bit of social media, a lot of writing of blog posts and email newsletters and that kind of thing. And, you know, when, when I started after two decades in the home improvement business, I thought, well, I'll probably be the home improvement guy and that'll be my niche. And um, it has not turned out that way at all, which has been really interesting. Um, I've, I certainly have clients in that space, but I also have clients in industries that back then I didn't even know were industries. Uh, it's, it's really been interesting where it's just about all come from referrals and not from me having to knock on doors. And Every client is different and every day is different. And I, I love that, I, you know, every, you know, I'm not doing cookie cutter stuff for anybody. Everybody's needs are different and everybody's got a different story and we've got to try to figure out how best to tell that to their, their stakeholders. So it's, uh, it's really interesting work. Yep. As you engage new clients, do you ever find yourself offering a little bit of leadership coaching in, in the mix there? Sometimes. Um, yeah, sometimes that that is the case because a lot of places it's a really good fit. Like for me, the the business that's not quite big enough to justify having the full time marketing person and can outsource it. And sometimes what they do have is the really competent sort of catch all do everything admin person who does their social media posts and, you know, and works around their email newsletter. And the that for me is the chance to to lead and to guide and to teach and instruct and and sort of you know keep them pointed in the right direction that's consistent with where the company wants to go. So in that sense, yes, there there is some leadership coaching. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I I think it's the thought going through my mind right now is that once you kind of open the lid on leadership as a focus area, when you realize it's a real thing. You've never thought about it before. You, in your case, were thrust into it, and it was it was necessary to work on being a better leader. It it becomes a whole new dimension of your existence and how you show up, whether it's at work or in the community. And I always encourage people when you finally have that aha moment that this thing we call leadership is a real thing and something you can work on perfecting not that anybody does perfect it but you can at least work in that spirit it's a it's kind of a whole new revelation and it can create a whole new level of impact and potential for a business or a, a life absolutely yeah and i think the other thing i would throw out there and i always mention this when i speak to a group uh, because I think a lot of times we equate the word leader with boss in the business world, and it's not necessarily so. And, it, and you know, 200 people in the room, they're not all bosses. And I always say to them, look, I don't care if you're running a company of 200 people or if you're the new salesperson who started two weeks ago. Uh, you know, somebody in your life right now is looking to you for leadership, right? Might be your kids, might be your elderly parents as that role begins to shift and you have to be their caregiver instead of the way around. It's your spouse or significant other because in a in a solid relationship, we take turns doing that for each other, right? But somebody needs you as a leader. So don't tune out what you're hearing about leadership because you're not the boss. Absolutely. That's a great phrase. Thank you for sharing that. That is such a, a significant 
uh, thought that I think a lot of people do equate it with being in that designated role of of authority. And, you know, the sad part is there's a lot of people that may have made their entire career of managing something, but they've never demonstrated leadership. Yep. And it uh, usually when you meet somebody or, or meet a team that is under that sort of authority, you can see the the warning signs that, you know, we haven't seen leadership around here in a long time. <laughs> Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. Years ago, very early on in my career, um, I went to consult, and, and again, this was something outside my wheelhouse, but I said, I'll, I'll talk. And, and basically, an attorney friend had a client, and the company was having those kinds of issues, like something was off, employee morale, right? And they wanted somebody to come in and interview people and you know try to get to the root of what the problem was. And so I met with the owner and his wife. Uh, who was not his first wife. So, and so the stepmother of the guy who was down on the plant floor running everything. And we talked for maybe an hour and made some notes and I was ready to go put a proposal together. And on the way out, she pulled me aside and whispered in my ear that she was pretty sure the problem was her stepson down on the floor. And I thought, well, this all sounds pretty toxic. And that, that was probably a good miss, you know, because I, I, I did not get that gig and it's, uh, I, I'm not sure that was, you know, solvable. Right, right. Well, that's another whole discussion, the uh, the proverbial family-owned business. And uh, I've written actually a couple of articles, and I've got a colleague friend that uh, specializes in that area. And, and the classic phrase is, is there too much family in your family business? And if you can't yep. draw the dividing lines between that, uh, it, it can be a, a very toxic and I have the good fortune, the last private enterprise I built as a, as a commercial effort, not coaching, was uh, something I built with my wife, and she and I worked together in it, but I told her when we were going to do it, and she wanted to participate, I said, we need to draw some very white hot lines about who's going to do what, and for the areas we designate and decide, um, if it's if it's in your square, I'm going to stay out of it. You'll have full autonomy and control of it. If it's in my square, I need you to stay out of it. Now, not to say we weren't going to make big decisions together, but which we did. But for the day to day, we we had those white hot lines that defined everything, and and we just ran it that way. And about two years into the business, our youngest son was going through some life changes, high school age and such, and some challenges. And uh, he came to us and said, can I go to work for you guys? I kind of, I went, oh God, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, but I said, yes, on one major condition. And I explained the white hotlines to him. And at work, it wasn't mom and dad. It was, you know, 
boss and co-boss, and uh, he needed to follow the rules like everybody else on our payroll. We had about 30 employees at the time, and I said, you're going to be under a spotlight, and you've you've got to keep your stuff together, and the first time you go sideways, I'm putting you on notice, and I'm not afraid to fire you. And that that setting of expectations is so important. And this, you know, I I participate in and run uh, business peer groups and it comes up so often because it it comes up from the wrong end of things where they go, you know, I hired this person three, four months ago and it's just not working out. And okay, well, why isn't it working out? What's good? Well, I sort of feel like they're not doing that. And I sort of feel like they're not doing that, you know, and all. And what it comes back to is the onboarding plan and the like you're talking about the setting of specific expectations and it should really be you know specific enough where like day one meet everybody in the office you know end of the first week you're familiar with the company literature if you're going to go out there and sell you know and by the end of week two you're riding along with salespeople doing stuff and by the end of week three you know but it's it's literally a, a long series of check boxes so that when as these reviews come up, you're not sitting there looking at each other going, well, I don't think this is working out. You're saying, OK, look, we missed this and this and this. And this is why it's maybe not working out. You know, it, is it 100 percent? No, but it get it that setting of expectations and really detailed expectations, I think, gives, you know, a much better chance of success. So, you know, good good for you for for doing that up front. Yeah. Well, you, you raise a great point, and I, I teach this a lot in, in my own coaching. In fact, I did a two-day workshop with a mid-sized company last week that we talked a lot about that idea of expectations, but there's another part in it that I had a guest on my show last year. The title of the show was Two in the Canoe, and uh, that's an interesting coincidence talking about scouting and canoeing, yeah, right. but... Uh, uh, he his premise was that we don't do enough in the onboarding to sit down with the new hire and say, what are your expectations for the job here? But then you follow that up immediately with the question, now tell me your obligations. What's your sense of obligation, your commitment to the company mm-hmm. to, to make that happen? But then you don't stop there. You turn it around as the employer. You describe your own expectations and your commitment and pledge of obligation. Right. And it on one hand that expectation obligation dynamic is is contract 101 if you're going to write a contract that's what it's about and any good attorney you've ever met if you really ask them what are you doing when you write a contract they'll tell you that that's we're taking the two parties we're wanting to talk about expectations and obligations and you make commitments when you make a contract and you hope to get some kind of return for it and outcome and that's that basic expectation and obligation dynamic. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like yeah. your point that ultimately it's a kind of a flow of check boxes. Then when you do need to have the tough talk about failed expectations or missed expectation, you can be very tangible, very specific. Yep. And it doesn't get fuzzy and lost in translation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, as, uh, just shifting a, a little bit more into the business that you're doing right now, is there a any kind of emerging trend that you see for your client companies, concerns they've got specific? I mean, certainly the economy's on everybody's mind. Um, everybody I'm dealing with is doing at least pretty well so far, but 
you know, there's always always that the unknown out there. But right now it feels a little more unknown than usual. I, I think for me in the workplace, the thing that has changed most significantly goes back to the the pandemic and the, the lockdown where, you know, on Friday afternoon, we were all in the office working together and everything was fine. And then all of a sudden on Monday morning, we couldn't do that. We're, we're figuring out how Zoom works and and how to you know, manage people remotely and all that sort of thing, but not only manage them remotely and get the technology part right, but to also now take into account that your direct report is probably also trying to homeschool her kids or manage an aging parent who all of a sudden she's not allowed to be with physically, you know, or any number of other things. And and I think, you know, it, it called for a, a deeper level of empathy as leaders than maybe it did previously and not everybody passed the test you know and hence along came the great resin the great resignation and then you know the the quiet quitting and what we're now calling the employee the employee engagement crisis i mean they're all sides of the same coin i think but um people had lots of reasons to to leave their jobs i mean some found out they could make a living selling whatever they sell on etsy right others just decided that this pandemic was a dramatic enough moment that hey i'm going to go do what i've always really wanted to do you know and that and that's all because you know this is my moment to do that but a lot of people i think you know one of my favorite sayings in business is people join companies and they quit bosses and i think a lot of people quit their bosses so I agree. I agree. And and I, I have similar observation and experience that the pandemic taught us a lot about many things. And one of which is the boss that had a tradition of the old school command and control mindset. And I think um, people are just walking away from that. And they, they may not voice an objection, but to your point, with the revelations they had out of COVID, sort of even the the bumping up close to their own sense of mortality, like, mm-hmm. you know, this COVID could get me, you know, I yep. don't know. And we didn't, there was a many months there, we didn't know. It was a very unknown, undefined threat. And people in varying degrees struggled with that, and some better than others, but um when it came to the boss that had that autocratic command and control, people just said, "Yeah, I'm. This is my moment. I'm done. I'm not going to do yeah. that." Yeah, yeah. Empathy is the thing. And and the other point I mean, I spoke to a group recently, and um, we, we were on this topic. It was a leadership conference, and so I said, "You know, show of hands, how many of you are pretty confident that you, uh, on your drive over here today, used your turn signals at every appropriate moment?" And they all looked at me like I was nuts, you know, and maybe two thirds of the hands went up. Okay, fair enough. And and I said, including lane changes and a few more hands went down. But I said, so what does that have to do with anything? And and the, the point is, I don't think we can, you know, we, we use our turn signals for the benefit of other people, right? To let them know that we're about to slow down and turn left or right or whatever it is. I don't think we can be the person who's out there treating all the other drivers on the road like obstacles and, you know, whipping in and out of traffic and tailgating and, you know, trying to get where we are because our time is more important than anybody else's, right? And then pull into our parking lot and step across the threshold into our workplace and say, okay, I'm going to put on my empathetic leader hat now and be somebody completely different. You know, empathy is something we have to practice as humans if we're going to be good at it 
in a leadership setting. And it comes down to the dozens of decisions we make every day and we'll never get them all right. And that's okay. But the goal was to gradually do better day by day by day. Um, and that, that seemed to resonate with, to uh, resonate with that. It was, it was an yeah. interesting moment. Well, got my attention and well, I'm going to have to go the, check. You know, the driving thing is universal. We all live it every day. And, you know, uh, I, well, enough said. Yeah. Well, I'm glad my wife's not listening to this. She'll have some stories about my driving. And, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, of course, I live in the Houston area, and I think we're now emerging as close to the number one traffic snarl in the country. I don't know, but it uh, yeah. we we live it, and it uh, it does test your your fiber about who and what you are and what you believe about humanity to get behind the wheel. <laughs> It, it does, because yeah, it's easy to forget that there's other humans in those cars and that they're not just cars. And, you know, and sometimes we, we think very bad things about those other humans, too. And, and well, I'm, as, I'm as guilty as anybody, but I do use my turn signals, by golly. And, and, and to your point, the other dynamic about the, the pandemic that I've talked to a lot of people about, I am firmly convinced that a couple of years from now, when the big business schools start writing case studies about management and leadership through the pandemic, I think the number one topic that's going to be studied is the effectiveness of communication or lack thereof during the pandemic. And I think the companies that figured out effective, proper communication, whether that's cadence or content or substance, they're the ones that are going to emerge as the winners coming out of COVID. And I, I run into that a lot. And I can't tell you, I've lost count of how many executives I've talked to that said, I don't know when I should talk to my people now that we're all remote. And I'm going, are you serious? You don't know when you, you yeah. know, and I said, why don't you ask them, you know, mm -hmm. one by one, you know, when you have your one-on-ones with your team, why don't you ask them what works for them? Do they need a daily check-in? Is that something in their fiber they're going to demand and want and to feel connected? Or are they okay with once a week or twice, you know, once every two weeks, you know, that kind of thing? And find out. Go ask them. Yeah, and you just touched on a major, another major theme of leader by accident. So thank you for that. But it's it's about the it is about communication and specifically about the language that we use as leaders. And it all grows out of a, a story that I'll, I'll tell very quickly, but I had one of my scouts were, it's about 15, 16, junior year of high school. We're setting up chairs before a meeting and just chit chatting. And so I asked him, you know, he started to think about colleges, what majors, you know, all that. And he rattled off a few things and he said, Mr. Rafferty, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I don't know. What, what, what do you like to do? What interests you? And we talked a little more and I forgot the conversation had ever happened. Small talk, right? And um, about a year and a half later, when he reached Eagle Scout, he sent me a nice handwritten note thanking me. And um, in that note, he recalled that conversation that we'd had. And he said that was the first time in his life that anybody had asked him what he wanted to do with his life at 15, 16 years old, right? That was jaw-dropping to me. That what I thought was, you know, a throwaway question actually had a much deeper impact. Now, in this case, it was probably a good thing, right? But the, the point is that as leaders, it is so easy for that to go the other way. And I think it's so much easier for it to go wrong now 
that so many of the ways we communicate involve typing instead of talking, right? We're, we're emailing, we're texting, we're Slack and Teams and, you know, all these other things. And it's so easy for the, the tone of our intent to get lost in what we're saying. So, you know, if I'm communicating with people in written form as a leader, I sure want to be in the habit of following up in person on a regular basis to make sure not only that it was received and understood, but that it was interpreted in the way I meant. Because if you don't do that, two things happen. One is you wind up with somebody with their nose out of joint, and and two is you're the last one to know. And, and neither of those are good things when you're trying to lead a team. Yeah. Well, back to your story there, I think it's so critical for people to understand that you never know a simple thought or a simple question or a simple statement that you share with somebody can be a life-changing moment. And it, it may be very benign to you and, and very, I mean, pertinent, but not pivotal. And you realize later that it had a major impact on a life. And uh, there's a gentleman I, I do some work with. We've been on each other's podcast together. And um, he's got a phrase that says, the right word spoken at the right time from the right person can change a life. 100%. And that's a, boy, if that's not a good summary of powerful leadership, I, I don't know what else would be. Yep. And and that, to circle back to the beginning of our discussion here, that was such a privilege for me as a scoutmaster. Uh, so just quickly, there, there's an element to the scouting program called the Scoutmaster Minute, which is essentially a little mini homily at the end of each weekly meeting. So the boys go out the door with a positive or motivational thought. And when I took over as Scoutmaster, I thought, well, I, I don't know five ways to light a fire without matches, but I'm pretty sure I could do this and, and communicate with these young men and and be another positive voice in their ear at a, a stretch of their lives when they really need as many as possible. And I, um, I worked very hard on those Scoutmaster minutes and kept an archive of them, mostly so I wouldn't repeat myself. But anyway, I, I use those throughout Leader by Accident where I, I take the, the Scoutmaster Minute I shared with the troop, and then the chapter that follows takes that lesson and tries to translate it into something meaningful for you and me and people trying to be leaders in our in our adult lives. And yeah, and it touches on all the themes that, you know, we, you and I have talked about here, about leading and about not saying no when new opportunities present themselves. And the uh, one we haven't touched on yet is the importance of a sense of gratitude. That was another regular um you know, topic of mind with them because it, it's important. Yeah, very good. Well, Jim, we're about up on time here. I really appreciate you sitting in and sharing with us. Tell the folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Sure. Uh, they can find me at leaderbyaccident.com. Uh, information about the book there, about me, this contact form. Uh, the book itself is available on Amazon and everywhere else that you get books, either in uh, paperback or for your Kindle or Nook or audiobook read by the author because he used to be a radio announcer. So, um, yeah, that's how I spent my, uh, not this past winter, but the one before. It takes a long time. Uh, so, yeah, uh, certainly uh, would encourage you to check that out. But, yeah, leaderbyaccident.com is a great place to start for any of that. That's great. Well, one last time. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate you sitting in and thank you for your service to scouting and, and the work you did there. I'm sure it was meaningful. Thanks so much. Appreciate it and enjoy the talk, Doug. 
All right, everyone, we're going to wrap it up. And I want to thank you for sitting in and, and joining us. Uh, check out Jim's book. It sounds like a great read. I know I am. And um, it. Uh, uh, I do want to remind everybody, we've got a video version of this episode over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there and check us out. Subscribe, if you will. We'll hit the bell and uh, give us a thumbs up, thumbs down. We'd love to hear from you. For now, we are going to give you back your day and uh, say that it's a pleasure having you here with us. We hope to see you again real soon. Take care. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.